Welcome to National Disability Services Sector Development Podcast, which takes a look at the NDIS in action for service providers. NDIS participant planning aims to identify reasonable and necessary supports required to meet the needs of an NDIS participant and align with individual goals. Once completed, an NDIS plan will provide individualised funding for supports for the plan recipient, enabling them to lead an ordinary life. Now that sounds pretty straightforward, right? Well, that hasn't necessarily been the case in the early years of the NDIS, with frustrations reported about a wide range of issues, including the ambitious NDIS rollout schedule impacting on quality planning outcomes, some negative planning experiences with local area coordinators, and planning not linked to employment goals. And that's just to name a few issues. Welcome to the first episode of the NDIS Sector Development Podcast from National Disability Services, where we aim to equip all who provide services under the NDIS with a greater understanding of the ins and outs of the scheme. You can find all of the notes and the transcript from this and future episodes at nds.org.au forward slash SDP. Just navigate to the podcast button. Today we'll be taking a deep dive into strategic and operational aspects of NDIS planning so service providers can better support their customers with NDIS planning to enable people with disability to have that all-important choice and control. The driving motivation behind a successful NDIS for Australians with disability. We'll look at a person's rights during their planning meeting, the NDIS planning pathway, hear from NDS's Chief Executive, Dr Ken Baker, the CEO of the National Disability Insurance Agency, Rob DeLuca, Carl, a person who went through a plan review, and some of our esteemed sector leaders. My name is David Moody, and I am the Victorian State Manager of National Disability Services, the peak body for non-government disability service providers in Australia. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Daniel Layton. Daniel is the General Manager of Local Area Coordination at the Brotherhood of St Lawrence, and we're also joined by NDS's very own NDIS Transition Advisor, Pascal Dreyer. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Welcome. Fantastic. Okay. So, Daniel, if I could start with you, could you tell us a little bit about your role as the General Manager of Local Area Coordination for the Brotherhood in North East Melbourne area? What is your why as to why you took this role and what do you see as your main responsibilities? Well, thanks for the question, David, and thanks for the opportunity to be here and speak with uh, NDS members as they ready themselves and as more providers come on stream during this transition phase over the next couple of years. So my interest in the NDIS, as you know, goes back many years, and in fact I was appointed by the previous government as an advisor on the design of the scheme prior to it actually being announced and moving into trial, and since that time I've continued to be involved in one way or another with the scheme. So the why for me joining the Brotherhood was that one of my passions has always been around seeking inclusiveness for people with disabilities and particularly for me people with intellectual disability and how we can create welcoming communities and not just communities where people are pleasantly tolerated. And so the role of local area coordination is one that is really only a couple of decades old and we have a lot of work to do to really get to grips with it and to help the role achieve what it wants to achieve, which is to support the inclusion of people with disabilities. And I think I need to be really clear that whilst people focus on, and certainly your members will focus on the 460,000 Australians who are funded to receive a support package through the NDIS, 
We'll all recall the Every Australian Counts campaign where we recognise up to one in five Australians as a disability. And the role of local area coordination is to also work with all of those people with a disability and to try and drive really inclusive communities to meet everyone's needs. And how are you going to do that in terms of driving people to support people with disability to be part of an inclusive community? What's the how look like? Yeah, that, that's a really difficult question and I don't necessarily have any answers today. I know that we've got a few paths that we want to walk down and we know that we'll continue to trial and improve our methodology. But if I were to sum it up in a couple of sentences, our aim is to begin with the National Disability Strategy, which identifies a range of broad areas in which we need to work as a nation and do better. From that, to distill down and something that the Brotherhood has done in all the areas in which we work. And as you're aware, we're now coming on stream in two other areas in Melbourne, uh, in Bayside Peninsula and in the Hume Moreland areas. And so we have signed statements of intent to work in partnership with each of the local governments in all of those areas. Mm. And bearing in mind, of course, that although the National Disability Insurance Scheme is intended to provide supports to 475,000 Australians, it's also true that on the latest data that we have, approximately 2.2 million Australians have been identified or have self-identified as having a disability. So that there are hundreds of thousands of people, literally, who will fall outside the NDIS who will need to be able to avail themselves of that support. That's absolutely correct. And that's part of the role of the local area coordination services around Australia. So, Pascal Dreyer, I'll turn to you now. You're our in-house Victorian NDIS Transition Advisor, and you've got broad experience in the Barwon trial site. Those entering their planning meetings have rights, but what are they? That's a very good question, David, Um, and it's one that we certainly do get at a number of our readiness and implementation events that we run across Victoria. Certainly a participant has the right to take whoever they wish to their planning meeting. So that could be a family member, it could be a friend, it could be an advocate, or it could even be a service provider. So I think it's really important to remember for providers in this space that they are not allowed to go to the planning meeting. They're most certainly invited, but they do need to be invited by the participant. I need to ask you this question, Pascal. As we understand it, in fact, as we're told by the agency, about 68 to 70% of current NDIS participants have a not insignificant cognitive disability. So in terms of the granting of that permission, how in your experience and our experience is that being done? So my, my understanding is that it's a conversation that the participant has with a service provider or it's, or it's identified in the pre-planning session with the provider. So the provider um, may well in advance to the transition rollout date, may be starting to have some conversations with their participants around this is the NDIS, this is what you can expect. You can expect a phone call and, and really work through what that looks like for them and, and identify, look, you are able to take who you want. You can take your mum, you can take aunt. Sally, or you can take us if that's who you feel more comfortable with. It's not explicit consent, as we understand it in the legal sense, but it's about having that conversation and and the participant and or their family or guardian identifying, this is who we'd like to have along with us so that we can explain, you know, support needs and, you know, what we'd like to do with the plan over the next 12 months. And Daniel, if I could ask you, are you comfortable with that explanation from the point of view of the LAC responsible for certainly in phase one, the first 80% of the planning? Absolutely. And I think one of the points, and, and probably going back to answering the question about why why the Brotherhood, well, the Brotherhood sits in a quite a unique space in that 
all of our work in the northeast Melbourne area has actually been face-to-face work. And so we haven't engaged in the telephone planning unless it's been a participant's desire to do that. In fact, we've even tried some planning over email. It wasn't very successful, but uh, we gave it a shot because that was what the participant wanted to do and, and how they felt that they could best address their situation rather than having to come into a meeting. But but absolutely, we'd like to hear from the people themselves and we'd like to hear from the people around that individual, mm-hmm. the trusted and you know loved ones, family and carers and the like, who are able to provide a complete picture because we know that when we get an incomplete picture, we end up with people missing out on the supports that they need. And so one of the messages we're always, that I'm always saying to my staff is it's very much like some of the work that I did, um, you know, working with individuals in um, a range of providers where I've worked previously is that we want to be in contact with the right people at the right time to provide the right supports. And so we need to know what those are. We need to understand what supports people are gaining from the community, from family and friends and others, and then what their aspirations are. And so that we can look to fill in that gap between what they can achieve and what they want to achieve with the right level of funded supports. So to both of you, I'm right in saying for the benefit of providers listening to this program that we don't need formal legal consent to a person providing support to a person with disability in the planning process? Well, no. What we need is an individual to come along to their planning meeting and to have present the people that they feel that they would like to have present. Pascal, you're comfortable with that? Yes. And Daniel also brought up another important thing to remember in terms of participant rights in the planning meeting, and that's that they have a right to a face-to-face meeting. So previously, uh, probably at the beginning of this full scheme rollout in July 2016, there was a bit of a push to have a fo- over-the-phone planning conversations and that didn't suit a lot of people, as, as you you know well assume. And the agency is, has since really backflipped that kind of approach and said no face-to-face meetings is our default. However, if participants wish to choose an over-the-phone meeting, that is most certainly within their right. As also Daniel said, you know, the LAC can be accommodating and even do it over means such as email, even though it might not have been appropriate. That's right. And and Pascal, I think we should point out that in regional and rural areas, there have been really successful planning meetings occurring over Skype. And, and the use of video conferencing and the like. So so a face-to-face doesn't necessarily mean in-person, but as long as it's a medium that is comfortable yep. for all parties in order to capture the information that's necessary mm. to write up the plan. How do we make provision within the plan? I might ask you this one, Pascal, to ensure that the person with disability is supported or able to financially manage their plan. So there's a number of options there, David. Certainly a participant can choose to self-manage their plan. So that means that they themselves handle the invoices and pay the providers directly. And then they they have a relationship with the participant portal to, to recover those monies. Does the participant get any training or support to actually practice becoming a self-manager before they do it? So they can access um, supports via their plan to support them to build build their skills and knowledge around self-managing. There's also a number of resources available on the NDIA website in terms of what that self-managing, you know, what self-managing looks like and, and you know, how they can upskill uh, so that they're able to perform those duties appropriately. And the LAC, I believe, are also capable of supporting participants who are self-managing if they do have any queries. Am I right, Daniel? That's absolutely right. Although I think one of the disappointing things is that 
not as many people have taken up self-management as perhaps I would have liked to have seen because it really talks and speaks to an individual taking control of their own life, mm. uh, making the choices that they want to make. And so I do think that there's additional work required on behalf of the partners, such as the ECI services and, and uh, local area coordination services, to actually generate and to speak with our partners in the NDIA about additional materials to make it easy. And I reflect on some of the the work that was done in many states around Australia in developing guidelines and resources for people who began to self-manage with individual support packages under various names over the past decade or so. And I think there's a lot that we could learn from those and a lot that we should be picking up again and you know editing to make fit for purpose for use within the NDIA scenario. But when we talk about self-management, and I have heard this from a number of our members at different times, is the argument that self-management represents a potential threat to the business model of providers. How do you respond to that? Well, David, I think that uh, I'm probably not best qualified now that I sit in a distinct space, but I don't think providers should be worried by self-management. In fact, I think, and you and I have discussed, the pursuit of operational excellence and what that looks like. And if you're meeting customer needs, then you've got nothing to fear. And so I think that self-management is an opportunity for people to be really clear about what they're trying to do. I mean, one of the things that I would really dearly love to see happen is more people self-managing who are then going to providers and saying, can we strike a deal? You know, instead of charging me per hour, can I strike something for a term, a quarter, a year, a course, and starting to encourage providers to think differently about how they might parcel up their services and include a range of bundled services at, at a particular price. And, and self-management really gives the opportunity for that to occur and therefore to support providers to think about how they might trial very quickly different approaches to working with people and then learn that perhaps that was an approach that didn't work or quickly pivot the rest of the organisation going, this actually worked really well for our participants, for our staff and for our administration teams Mm. and, you know, and start to drive more business down a particular way of doing things. Okay, so Pascal, certainly it's been my personal experience we're starting to see an increasing incidence of the number of people with disability or NDIS participants availing themselves of a plan manager or financial intermediary. I wonder if you wouldn't mind explaining what what that role looks like. Certainly. So... A plan manager supports a participant to essentially access their funding in a more flexible manner. Essentially, the plan manager supports a participant to have that greater oversight of their spending and, and what their funding actually looks like. What it means is, is that the plan manager invoices the agency directly for supports delivered by other providers and then pay those providers for those supports delivered. It's really too important to remember that that in a planning meeting, a participant is able to request the inclusion of plan management supports within their plan, just as much as they have the right to request to self-manage their plan or have their funding agency manage. So, so it's not assessed as a reasonable and necessary support. If they want no. it, they get it. Is no, that right? that's correct. So they should receive that in their plan if they request that. And, and I'm aware that there have been some issues around that in, in past times where the agency or, or the LAC have come back and said, no, that's a reasonable and necessary decision. But in fact, it is not. A, a participant very much has the right to request that and have it included. The only caveat around self-managing your funds, and if the agency deems that you do not have the capacity to self-manage your funds, they can essentially say that you can't. So you're saying that providers and indeed people with disability need to be aware that there have been some decisions that we've seen, mistakes if you will, which have meant that people with disability have mistakenly been led to believe that they can't as a matter of right 
request a plan manager as part of their plan. Correct. So that's an important thing to emphasise then that that right does exist. Yes. And they should exercise it if yes. they wish to. Yes, certainly. Okay. What criteria do they rely upon to actually determine whether or not a participant has the right to self-manage their funds? So it's not entirely clear and it, it's certainly based on, I suppose, the past. So you need to have evidence that that participant doesn't have the capacity to self-manage those funds. So where someone has never self-managed or, has, you know, hasn't had an ISP or, or whatever it may be, has never had that before, that no evidence exists. So there is a bit of a risk there potentially where someone who doesn't have the capacity to self-manage self-manages their plan and then incorrectly uses their funds or, or issues. But David, arise. I think it's really important to note that the, the NDIS legislation is built on a rights framework. And yep. so the legislation itself is premised on the basis of presumed capacity to self-manage. Yep. So that, that should be the starting point for every individual. The second point to make is to really revisit uh, what Pascal was just saying, and that is that it's a requirement of the Act that a participant's plan include a statement of how the funding for the supports will be managed. So it should be prompting a conversation. And again, I'd encourage all providers that are engaging with the people that they support and doing pre-planning to actually have a conversation around this. I, I don't know, but I have a sense that it is one area that is kind of glossed over in the discussion around, well, this is your chance to talk about what works for you, what supports you need holistically, rather than just having a conversation around what supports either provider have been able to provide for you for the past five years or 15 years. This is an area to say, would you like to do this? Is it an area where you'd like to grow? You know, it's an area for providers to think, would I be able to offer this service? You know, is there a capacity building opportunity to assist individuals to, to learn and grow. And the fundamental premise of everything that occurs in the National Disability Insurance Scheme is around capacity building. I think one of my chief gripes is that I see people finish off a year of supports that are around capacity building and capacity hasn't been built. And I think either we need to really focus in on what we're trying to achieve mm. or we need to be having conversations around whether some of those people have the skills to be able to build capacity uh, with participants. Mm. And they might be in some areas but not in others. And, you know, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but but a marketplace really does lend itself to specialisation. And I think you'll see, and I think, in fact, if we were to go through the list of the thousands of new providers that are out there, that there is actually a whole lot of real niche areas where people are focusing in on. And I think there have traditionally been some kind of family support organisations, family governed groups and, and organisations that provide support to individuals who've wanted to chart their own course to really assist them to grow and build their capacity and manage things for themselves and to truly understand that move from service provider as expert to service provider as partner. And so I think coming back to this discussion around, around self-management and plan management, these are opportunities to engage in those sorts of conversations. And I think they're really encouraging signs that we can begin to see. Unfortunately, as I said earlier, I'm just not certain that enough people have, have been able to hear the message that we've just been talking about. I certainly think I'm hearing from both of you, thematically speaking, that having those early conversations with participants, families and support networks, if you're a provider, is tremendously important to ensure that as participants transition, which is a shocking word, but move into the scheme, they are equipped with the tools that they need to understand the benefits and opportunities the scheme presents, albeit in the context of the scheme still being pretty immature. Yes. Okay, so Pascal, if I can ask you, there are other rights associated with the planning process and they include the right to determine when a planning meeting occurs. Is that correct? Yes, that is very much correct. You know, you made that statement around 
the importance of pre-planning. I'd really encourage providers to also have that conversation with participants around, you know, you can expect a phone call from the agency and, and this is something that they might say. They might say they're from the National Disability Insurance Agency and don't be frightened of that. It's not an insurance scheme. They're not out to get your money. But also to encourage them to understand that, in fact, when they call you, you don't have to take that phone call at that time. You can say, look, now's not a good time. I actually have none of my supports around me and I'd like to complete this conversation with my mum next to me. So could you please call me back at 5pm when she is home? So really encouraging people to also have that, that confidence to say, no, now's not a good time. This is when it does suit me and this is when you can call me back and then we can have that conversation. So, so Daniel, if you get that sort of response when a call is made, does that push that person to the back of the queue? Oh, absolutely not. So our work, David, is really focused on trying to meet the needs of the individual. And I've just been recruiting many staff around new areas. And one of the key things I say to them is that we seek excellence. We don't want people who are going to tick and flick boxes. So coming back to the choice around getting phone calls, we run an intake team. uh, And as soon as we receive the information and the contact details to contact a participant to begin the planning process, we will have conversations. And I can tell you that I see lists every morning of delays because someone's gone to hospital, because someone's going on holidays, because something's happened. And our staff know to call back to follow up if there is at particular times, and we work on enhancing these scripts so that we're really clear with people about what we're trying to do so that we can follow up and then set up meeting times and also provide pre-planning information before someone has a planning meeting. So we'll try to be as accommodating as possible, and that includes evening and some weekend work. As the peak body for disability service providers here in Australia, we hear a lot from our members about the impact on their business of unbillable time that pre-planning discussions can have on that business to ready their clients for their first and subsequent NDIS planning meetings. In December 2017, we spoke with Penny Hamilton, CEO of Yellow Bridge, about these matters. Penny's been delivering NDIS-funded supports for two years now, and here's what she had to say. So most of our clients will now line up for their second plan, and we're, we're really looking forward to what that can deliver on their behalf and we will advocate for it. But it is the challenge, I've heard it here today, I've heard it a lot, that there's a lot of unpaid work that the providers do. It's a real toss-up between having the biggest heart in the world, which we all do, and having a business that's sustainable. And at the end of the day, we do have to have a sustainable business to make NDIS work. David, I think it's really interesting when we pick up on Penny's points that she was making reference to pre-planning and sweat equity and the involvement that's required. And Pascal, I'm sure you'll have something to say about this and the value of it. But I think when I recollect about the state of the sector report that's released annually by NDS, that my recollection was last year that more than one in two providers had a participant move to another provider. And I would have thought that that is evidence alone and evidence enough to want to engage in pre-planning and to understand what it is you're currently providing to participants and what it is that they might actually like to be receiving. Oh, certainly. Certainly, Daniel. It's I couldn't emphasise the importance of pre-planning enough. It's definitely, while, while cost of doing business, it's a necessary cost of doing business. It allows for providers to have that conversation with participants about 
what they're receiving, and as you said as well, what they would like to receive. It can help form the strategic pathway for the organisation moving through into the NDIS, recognising that, you know, providers will need to be looking at themselves quite hard and and considering what areas of my business are viable and, and which will continue to be viable moving into the NDIS. Do I need to diversify my service offerings and will my customers be receptive to that? So it's really important to have those conversations with participants and also identify the areas in which that they're unhappy with. Are they not enjoying that service? And, and, and that's perhaps why they, you know, they feel a bit uncomfortable about discussing, you know, continuing that service with you. Is, is there an element of that that offering that, that needs to be adapted or, or revised at all? So it, it really is integral and, and important that providers do undertake that pre-planning work. And also I think it's important to recognise that, you know, they also need to do pre-NDIS work as well for their own organisation in understanding their costs and understanding the the actual and true cost of doing business so that they can also look at the prices reflected within the price guide and understand how those translate. Because there will be circumstances where providers will discover in doing that work that in fact the price of the service that they're providing at the moment, if once offered under the NDIS, will in fact be less than the cost to the organisation of providing that service. That may be. And in those circumstances, certainly it's been NDS's advice to its members in Victoria that it's incumbent upon boards and senior leadership teams of organisations to work together to determine whether or not if they wish to offer a service which, to be frank, is loss-making, that they're doing so on the basis of their mission or whether or not they're doing it at all. Yeah. And NDS has developed some resources as well uh, for providers to use in their pre-planning discussions and conversations with participants. It is more geared towards preparing participants for their plan. So I would encourage providers also consider what what key answers or, or conversations do they also need to have with participants to understand, I suppose, how participants feel about their service offerings and possibly also drawing together an interim service agreement while they're waiting for that plan approval so that they're able to create a service booking from plan approval date. So those sorts of things, I think, are an aside, but but certainly we have developed some pre-planning tips for, for providers to use with their participants. And they, and so, Pascal, we might now turn to the last of the rights accorded to a person with disability in terms of the planning process. I wonder if you might, wouldn't mind taking us through that. Certainly. So the last one being the right to request the LAC to undertake the plan review, even if the NDIA conducted the initial planning meeting. So this is really in the context of scheduled plan reviews. I think, though, while, while it's important to recognise this right, I think it's almost a nice segue to begin talking about the uh, new participant pathway because I would anticipate that this right actually might look a bit different if the planning looks a bit different as well Mm -hmm. because obviously this is premised on the fact that approximately uh, 30% of the plans will be done by the NDIA and 70 to 80, whatever the split may be, will be done by the LAC. Now, this may change under the new participant pathway. So so while it is is a right that's present and current, I think it's important to recognise that there may be some nuances or changes to what this looks like. Another example of the ever-changing nature of the scheme in its early years. Okay, so we spoke to Carl on the subject of planning, who has been an NDIS participant for 18 months. Here's what he had to say about his NDIS planning journey. (laughs) 
My name's Carl. I've been an NDIS participant for about 18 months and uh, things are going well now, but early on in, in planning with the NDIS, there were a couple of issues that I experienced. The way they were going about it early on, they were doing lots of things um, with phone calls. And so I got a phone call from someone um, called an information gatherer. They, they told me they were gathering information about my NDIS plan. I said to them, is this the planning conversation? Because I you know, knew what, what to ask for because of the, the work I was doing. And they said, no, they're just gathering information. So I had a very quick chat with them on my lunch break while I was eating a sandwich. I think I was talking to them for about 10 minutes. And then unbeknownst to me, that, that was my actual planning conversation. So after I had a chat with the information gatherer, I, I thought that was an initial scoping conversation. And then there'll be a proper planning conversation either with someone from the NDIA or the local area coordinator in the area. But, but no, I, I got my plan in the mail after that brief discussion. And what was in the plan was only very, very surface and didn't cover you know, the vast majority of, of my of my needs. I was hoping to get a lot more out of my plan than I did originally, um, it, but even though even though the plan I got back the first time was quite inadequate, it was still four to five times what I was getting through my ISP. So, you know, that shows problems with the old system, which is very important to, to highlight, but the plan that I got was still quite inadequate to, to what I needed. Um, I need about six or so hours of personal care support uh, per day for me to you know get up in the morning to eat and to go back to bed doing all that type of thing um, and I got about three which was not enough obviously so I had to do something about it the first thing that I did was um, put in an internal review to the agency to the the NDIA to say that the decision that the agency made I didn't agree with they actually said that they'll call me back within a couple of days and they called me back within a couple of days and um, we actually got it resolved within a week of my issue being raised and that was you know pretty pretty good I thought it was really good compared to waiting on an ISP you know disability support register for years and years that was quite refreshing for me the outcome was that I got the plan that I wanted and again you know what I wanted wasn't something that was far-fetched or out of left field it was quite um, obvious to me I think, and it again you know, met the criteria of reasonable and necessary, and it allowed me to have enough funding to eventually move out of home and be independent. Yeah, my life's a lot simpler now in many ways because I've, I know I've got enough budget in terms of you know hours of staff and enough support for other things, so I don't have to ration my support. I don't have to go without, which means lots more peace of mind. Uh, another benefit is, you know, I don't have to live with my parents anymore. I think that's a mutually beneficial thing for both them and myself. That was a fascinating interview with Carl, one of the participants based in northeast Melbourne area. And, gee, there was so much in it. So let's have a bit of a chat about that now. I think it illustrates why it's so important to have an effective and impactful planning meeting. But I wonder if I could ask both of you, Pascal and Daniel, what, from your perspective, as the lack on the one hand and the provider on behalf of NDS on the other, what are the key elements of an impactful planning meeting? Pascal, perhaps if we start with you. I think really understanding um, what supports you currently receive is probably one of the key areas 
particularly from a provider perspective. And in that sense, you know, understanding that when you go to work, you do receive support at work. You're talking about supported employment there? I am talking about supported employment. So really understanding what that support looks like. Uh, And, you know, yes, you go go to day service, but what does that actually mean? You know, really understand what does that mean and what does that support you to achieve? But aren't people aware of the fact that they're getting funding for supported employment or day services? No, no, not necessarily, David. That has been David. your experience? It has been our experience okay. that they may not necessarily be aware that they receive support in employment because they understand it as their place of work and that's where they go every day. If they don't understand the types of support that they receive, there's a risk that in the planning meeting, if an LAC or if an NDIA planner asks, or right, you know, what do you do during the day? And the person says, I go to work we found that sometimes, you know, that may not be delved into to really understand what that means. And there's an assumption that that might mean open employment, which, which of course, would mean that that person wouldn't require supports in their NDIS plan to support them to go to work. With the result that, as we know from a number of our members who are disability enterprises providing support and employment, that they have current clients coming back to the workplace to say they now have their plan but sadly, at that point at least, it doesn't make any provision for them to continue to be funded to undertake that supported employment. Correct. And, and we did see this issue come up quite a number of times um, earlier in the scheme, most certainly. And I, I believe it is, it's gotten better, but we, we are still seeing instances of that occurring. And Daniel, from your perspective, some of the other key elements of an impactful planning session? Oh, look, I think Carl gave us, you know, some really wonderful uh, descriptions of what the NDIS is really trying to achieve. And it's great to hear and we need to hear more of these messages. You know, when he spoke of not rationing, of having a peace of mind and, and particularly being able to move out of home, I think for me, they're one of the things alongside the employment that really seal for me what the premise was about and that it's really starting to achieve results for individuals. So for me, uh, what would I want to be seeing to have an impactful planning meeting? Uh, Certainly from the local area coordination side, I'd want to see knowledge, skills and an approach, knowledge of disability. And Carl spoke there about he had an LAC who knew what was going on. I want them to have knowledge of the scheme so that they are actually informative when they're sitting down with a participant to say, well, this is possible and this isn't. Mm. And that goes back to my earlier comment around clarity. We need to be really clear, and Carl spoke a number of times about reasonable and necessary, and we're all very familiar with Section 34 of the Act, Mm. that we need to have those conversations. And sometimes people don't like to hear it, but we need to be clear about what those conversations are. So then that really connects into the second part, which is the skills. And I want particularly the ability of staff to be able to build rapport with people. That's number one. They've got to be able to connect with the person with whom they are speaking. And so to see each other as Australians as equals and to have that conversation as equals, to make the person feel comfortable, to draw out of them their story and what it is that they want to achieve. And then the next part around those skills is actually around, again, communication, but it's actually around the ability to record this information accurately. And I think as Carl spoke about, I can infer from what he was saying when he had his telephone conversation, and and I know both in our experience, but also the experience of other LAC providers, that our job is to collect this information, to enter it into into the database and to prepare it in such a way that it can be easily read by a delegate of the agency. And if the information cannot be read, if they cannot understand what has been written by one of my staff, and they cannot easily draw out a justification that's, you know, nice and clear as to why Carl or someone else would be seeking a support, 
then it's of no help to anyone. Mm. In fact, we've wasted everyone's time in that planning meeting and we've wasted a few more hours as my staff have written it up if they can't write it up properly. But the final bit, I think, is that we have to have an approach and that's an approach around a belief of what is possible and support people to make that happen. And that doesn't necessarily mean being an advocate. I think it was much more grounded in reality in Carl's situation and in many others about well, yes, you can move out of home. Yes, you can get a job and let's work to make that possible. And I think some of the, you know, probably preempting a conversation, but I think one of the challenges for us is to have to have an understanding of what the goals might look like and that a goal, a list of goals for a plan for a year or for a few months or for a couple of years is not a laundry list. It really is about how much can be achieved in that defined period of time that's agreed to. And it might be setting in place a series of steps that leads to a series of goals down the track. But in fact, you know, trying to write down that you're going to achieve 10 things is probably likely to to the person not achieving any of them. Okay. And I think that also, I think, raises another key area of that pre-planning from a provider's perspective as well, in the sense of really understanding your services and what outcomes your services can support people to achieve. And also having those conversations with participants throughout that pre-planning, I'm not going to say meeting, but sequence really about, you know, these are the services you're accessing. But on top of that, this is what you are achieving. This is what you have achieved and this is what we could achieve, you know, and, and really understanding and having that conversation about goals and outcomes because they're the, they, they are the centre of the plan. Everything around the plan is based on the goals. If I might respond to that, Daniel, just by saying to Pascal, so I presume that providers who aren't geared or whose businesses aren't geared to understanding the outcomes that they're achieving are uh, at a disadvantage compared to those who are actually ready to talk with clients in terms of the outcomes that might potentially be achieved as a result of the provision of particular services. Oh, certainly, David. And I say that because whilst it shouldn't be a radical concept in this day and age, the fact of the matter is that ours is a sector which historically has been funded to deliver outputs rather than outcomes. And one of the great virtues of the scheme is its focus upon outcomes. But one of the great challenges of the scheme for that very reason is that all providers are capable of enunciating the outcomes they are achieving as a result of the services they are providing. And I think to Pascal's point around pre-planning and probably an area that I neglected to mention earlier around knowledge, it's knowledge of community-based supports of those mainstream supports and being able to neatly knit those together with funded supports where necessary. And so when we talk about pre-planning as well, an important distinction is that we know that there are tens of thousands, in fact, hundreds of thousands of Australians who've not yet received a disability support. So the role of the local area coordinator to assist those people to be ready and to understand a planning meeting when they're not already connected with the service system. Mm-hmm. I, I might also just make another point in terms of that pre-planning and and this is something that has come up throughout our readiness and implementation series and, and in our conversations with the LAC in various regions is I'd really encourage providers to think about how they message that pre-planning conversation because one of the things that has come up in various regions is that providers are unintentionally building participant expectations of this is what their plan will look like. And it's really important to be quite transparent as a provider in indicating 
you know, yes, we're having a pre-planning conversation, but this has absolutely no determination on what your plan will look like because we're not able to make any reasonable and necessary decisions and it still is on the basis of what the LAC and, and the NDIA discuss with you. So I am aware that there have been some scenarios where perhaps participants, um, because, you know, they may not have a high level of understanding of what the planning kind of trajectory looks like and, and quite rightly so, uh, may have had a pre-planning conversation with their provider and their provider sort of goes through the numbers and the figures with them as well and then the participant is disappointed because their plan looks very different because they thought they were getting a plan that they created with their provider. And I suppose that also feeds into the notion that that providers shouldn't be providing participants with a shopping list of supports where you've essentially got, you know, five times 42 whatever for one-to-one personal care supports equals, I can't do math, so I'm not going to try, but (laughs) X figure dollars against the plan and and really building that expectation. But it is appropriate, isn't it, that a participant in entering into the planning process understands the nature of the supports that they're receiving. Oh, certainly. And that they have that as a list. Not oh, a certainly. list with figures. Yes. But a list of what's those supports they're Correct. currently accessing. Correct. And a participant is able to bring in whatever resources or supports that they require in that planning meeting to support that conversation. Okay, well, Dr Ken Baker, the Chief Executive of NDS for almost 20 years now, played an integral role in getting the NDIS over the line with the Every Australian Counts campaign, which kicked off in 2011. Ken continues to be a tireless advocate for the NDIS Australians with disability deserve and should be entitled to. Here's what he had to say at the NDS's CEO meeting back in December 2017. 46% think the NDIS implementation should slow down. Now, that's a significant shift from the preceding year where only 32% thought that. Uh, And and I think that's a reflection of the fact that the implementation over the last 18 months has been pretty aggressive. We've moved from 30,000 people in the scheme at the end of the three-year trial period to now almost 120,000 people in the scheme. And it's been that rate of intake really, I think, that has tested systems and found systems wanting. Uh, And it's put enormous pressure, I think, on both the agency and disability service providers and people with disability who have struggled with uh, inconsistent plans. Phone planning, which has been a shortcut used because of the rapid intake and other glitches. We need NDIS planners, the people who develop support plans for people with disability to have knowledge of disability. We know that knowledge is very uneven, very inconsistent, and that we're getting, as a consequence, we're getting very inconsistent plans. Some of them are good, but some of them are really very bad and require a lot of work uh, by providers and families and people with disability to get those plans rectified and create a lot of anxiety. And again, I know the agency is aware of this, and is working on improving the planning process. But one key way of improving it would be to give people with disability and their families choice about who they go to to do their planning. If they want to go to the service provider who they've worked with for years, who they trust, who they have a relationship with, who they believe understands them, who understands disability, the impact of disability, and who understands the nature of support, 
They should have the choice of doing that. They should be able to go to their service provider if that's what they choose to do. They should also be able to go to other uh, organisations and entities, including advocacy organisations, if they want to do their planning there. Give people with disability choice. That's part of the promise of the NDIS. We also want to see more employment supports in plans. Uh, the figures at present, I think everyone acknowledges, including the agency, that they're too low. We're also finding the NDIS itself is not yet responsive uh, to the need for employment among people with disability. If you look at the plans, the support plans that people are getting, only 2.2% of funding in those support plans for people 25 years and above is for employment support. So given that the NDIS promised increased social and economic participation for people with disability, and that's one of the reasons why, over time, it will deliver greater economic benefits to Australia than costs. Part of that hinges on getting people with disability into employment, but there needs to be much stronger focus on that and getting employment supports into people's plans. So, Daniel, you've heard what... Uh... Dr Ken Baker, the National Chief Executive of NDS, has had to say about the planning process. And in particular, in that piece we've just heard, Ken focused in upon the ability, indeed the need for disability service providers to be able to have the ability to do the planning process with and on behalf of people with disability. Now, as the leader of a local area coordinator, which is currently doing that planning, how do you respond to that? Well, my opening comment is really a reflection on one of my mentors who always said to me that there was only two answers to a question asked in any community support organisation. That was either yes or let me think about it. And so uh, it's certainly an idea that one should think about. Having said that, I think that one of the key challenges that Ken also recognised around meeting the speed and the scale Mm. with which the National Disability Insurance Scheme is growing is actually around inconsistency. And so how would one develop an approach that would ensure consistency in the planning meetings that might occur at a local level between provider and participant who are very well known to each other, but a provider who perhaps isn't as up to speed with what is occurring and what's required, again, for remote decision by a delegate. And so I'm not certain at first blush that it might actually assist or address all of the concerns that people are talking about, that participants particularly raise themselves. Let's move on now. And um, now we're moving to the National Disability Insurance Agency CEO, Rob DeLuca. He addressed at the NDS CEO's meeting held in early December of 2017, Here's what he had to say about planning, including the trial of the new participant planning pathway. In terms of our aspiration around participants, uh, we have a survey that we measure people on a regular basis who have come through access and to plan discussions and to tell us how they found that experience. Um, And 84% of those surveyed in that quarter said that they thought it was good or very good. On one hand, that's not a bad result. On the flip side is we've got 16% of those surveyed saying we need to do more work. Um, We also recognise within the agency that this measure itself is a little blunt and probably not uh, longitudinal in terms of experience through different stages within the scheme. Uh, So we are, as part of our participant pathway pilot, testing a new measure to get a sense of people in their early engagement with the agency around access, around pre-planning, planning and post-planning and get a sense of as you transition through the process, 
what's working, what's not working. We also get some really encouraging uh, insights that our planners uh, are listening to participants, which is great. Now, many of you know that 12 months ago or so, you know, we rushed a number of plans. A lot of the planning process was done through the phone. That wouldn't have been as a, an empathetic experience as it should have for participants. And part of obviously our pathway going forward is to address that. And therefore, uh, the time that our planners and local area coordinators are spending with participants is starting to build a relationship with them and understand their needs and then hopefully address and ensure that the goals are being achieved. And I think many of us at the agency would be criticised uh, that we've focused on the bilateral numbers and doing numbers at the expense of quality and we're focusing our efforts on trying to get that balance right. It's not easy. You know, when you've got numbers of, you know, close to half a million over the next couple of years in either it's their first plan or review, that is a lot of work that needs to go through in terms of our planners and the partnership with our LACs and ECI partners. But we've got to get the balance on being able to do this at scale and get the quality right. Okay, Daniel, I might start with you. Your impressions of Rob DeLuca's comments at the CEO's meeting? I agree with where Rob's statements. I've had the uh, good fortune and privilege to spend time in Canberra in the Design Hub a few months ago working on the the high-level architecture of the new pathway based on our experience and certainly based on the experience of the hundreds of people and the dozens of sessions that were held with participants and with providers, with frontline staff and with state government officials about where they felt the bottlenecks and issues were occurring. As a result of that, there's been very significant work going on about how to correct and how um, how to provide a better experience for a participant right the way through the process. And I know that we're entering into jargon terms around pathway and the, and the like, but the reality is is that you would have also heard it and you can see the, the public statements of the chair of the NDIA. Uh, that That's Helen Nugent. Helen Nugent. It's simply from the board's perspective it hasn't been good enough. And Rob is echoing those concerns saying we must do better. And so we're very happy as a partner, as a, you know, a community-based organisation of long standing, to want to achieve better for people with disability, for all Australians, as is our mission. Okay. So some interesting insights there from Rob DeLuca, the uh, Chief Executive of the National Disability Insurance Agency. In particular for mine, his uh, reference to uh, the 84% of NDIS participants who've been through the planning process who are indicating they're satisfied or very satisfied with the planning process. Now, I believe as uh, Rob indicated in his remarks, 16% is 16% too many in terms of the level of satisfaction with the planning process. It's obviously a lot better than other percentages, but we're looking forward from a provider's perspective and as a national peak to working constructively with the agency to ensure that over time, the planning percentage satisfaction rates reach 100% and stay there. All right, let's hear now from our service provider community. Two esteemed leaders in NDS's membership in the sector, Estelle Fife from Anecdo and Graham Kelly from the Tipping Foundation, spoke to us about their views on participant planning. We started by asking Estelle if Anecdo's clients were satisfied with their NDIS planning experience. No, unfortunately, I wish I could say yes. Those that are very well prepared and have good family support are quite pleased, at least with the first plan about those that are perhaps more vulnerable and perhaps don't have such good family support that uh, we've just... uh, And we're only just as an organisation starting to engage 
with about 300 people who uh, wish to say they wish to remain with us as a major service provider are just starting their funding starting to transition so they are very open they're talking very openly about what's happening and how it goes and we're starting to get involved encouraging people to make appeals and to be prepared to do that and the appeals have actually gone quite well for some people I think the planning process that sort of online process didn't go very well for many people because it's such an intensely personal experience that we're dealing with and to deal with that on a telephone is it demeans the intensity of what's involved and I think a lot of people have struggled with that. I'm really pleased to see the emphasis now on face-to-face planning that I've been a strong advocate for that from day one and I've always said to our participants insist upon it because I think you get a, you'll get a better outcome so I'm really pleased to see that's come to pass That'll get better results. I know it'll be slower, but you're better to do it well at the front end than have reviews and frustration along the way. So I'm really pleased to see that progress. We thank both Estelle and Graham for their views. They're both such passionate believers in the NDIS, and I know their feedback is certainly in the interest of driving it forward. Like them, I too hope we can improve the planning experience and have that 16% dissatisfaction rate driven down significantly. So Pascal, if I could turn to you now, we've discussed at length the planning process and the various challenges and opportunities it represents. I wonder if you wouldn't mind taking us through an example plan which illustrates how a plan is put together for the benefit particularly of providers who are engaging with their clients to understand that planning process. Certainly. So I suppose recognising also that we may see plans change a bit with the participant pathway. However, that said, plans do come out predominantly with stating the participant, uh, with beginning with providing a bit of an overview of, of the participant circumstance that might identify what the participant likes to do on a day-to-day basis or, you know, any key informal supports and, and what that relationship looks like. It will then identify those goals. So the goals, as I said before, are really central to a participant plan. They really hinge on on those funding decisions. So providers are expected to be working with participants using the funding within the plan to help the participant achieve those goals. What's the example of the goals that you're referring to? So some goals, they're quite varied, David. and, and, And I think, look, I not to be overly critical, I think there's probably a bit of work to be done on improving what those goals read as or or look like, as we have heard of some coming out as I want to continue living in my group home, which of course isn't necessarily a goal. Which is equally unsatisfactory for the same reasons. Yeah. So, I mean, some goals could be, you know, I want to increase my community participation. So that's that's a really broad general sort of goal. It could be written in various different sort of ways. But say you've got I want to increase my community access or community participation, that in itself allows for a lot of scope for the provider to work with the participant to really understand how they can then support them. But would I be right in saying that anyone other than bureaucrats doesn't speak like that? I mean, I don't know anybody who embarks upon their life goals saying one day I aspire to have community participation. Yes, so, so that I guess that's something that I imagine the agency would be looking at as well in terms of that accessibility of language and what that looks like then in the plan. Certainly that language is used because that's the language used within the Act. So, you know, understanding that the key... Uh, aspirations of of the scheme itself is around community and economic participation and also helping people and supporting people to lead an ordinary life. 
So a lot of that key language is often reflected within the plan itself. And that's probably why bureaucratic language appears in, in something that is, is meant to be quite user-friendly. Okay, possibly an area for further development Correct. and later iterations of the legislation. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure about that. But um, certainly, I guess, going back to the plan itself, the plan then also identifies whether or not there are any key community supports or mainstream supports within that person's life um, and also informal supports. So key community supports, examples? Oh, look, I haven't seen many good ones on plans, David. So Can uh, I turn to Daniel then and ask if you've <laughs> seen any good ones? Sure. I think where people talk about being connected to the football club, the cricket club, to a local community choir, to maintaining involvement at the local gym, they're, they're all areas where we've seen people feeling a place where they enjoy going, where they feel connected, where they've got the opportunity for social interaction. And, where it's, and it's therefore important that they have, make reference to those community supports by name in their plan. Okay, Pascal, back to you. Wonderful. So then the plan goes on and essentially describes what what has been funded. So it describes what has been funded in uh, using language related to key support categories framed within the price guide. So some of those might be improved daily living, which refers to therapeutic supports more generally. So, you know, you could potentially access an OT, an occupational therapist, a speech therapist or, you know, a physio uh, using the improved daily living budget. It also describes supports, uh, you know, such as improved relationships that refers to behaviour support, that sort of thing. The only exception to that being core supports. So core supports are described at support purpose level and, and those are broadly flexible. Just, meaning, sorry, yeah. meaning what? When you say core supports are broadly flexible, does it mean that basically if I get, say, $60,000 to provide core supports within that 60 k I have the ability to spend it on whatever I like, provided it's mentioned in the plan? Potentially. So I think what's important to remember is the support purpose core supports has four different support categories underneath that, that being assistance with daily life, assistance to access the community, consumables and transport. So those are the four that that are theoretically flexible throughout. However, if a support is stated, and when I say stated, I mean it's explicitly stated. So the language stated appears on the plan and then a description afterwards. If that appears, that means that the participant can only use that funding for that support purpose. So where it says stated five hours of personal care supports a week, that's all that the participant can use that amount of funding allocated to that purpose, they cannot use that flexibly. And, and that translates into a, uh, an inflexibility within the system as well. So, so if, they, if, they, if they accidentally use six hours of supports, what happens to the other hour? So, I mean, say, say it had stated five hours of mm. personal care supports, but the rest of the core supports were flexible. They could certainly use six hours. They just couldn't. They just couldn't reallocate that funding to a different support purpose. So, say they had five hours of personal care supports, and they wanted to use one of those five hours to access the community. They would not be able to do that. Okay, David. I think it's important to recognise that at that point, a participant will engage with a mm. service provider or a range of service providers and will be encouraged to establish service agreements that spell out the terms and conditions of how and when and the volume of the services to be provided. And so I think 
whilst they're, they're certainly, you know, life happens and there mm. will be occasions when things occur, but I wouldn't expect that on a weekly basis, to use your example, where someone's providing six hours but the agreement is for five. Mm. You know, I think a participant would be really clear about that. In fact, I think we're starting to see participants saying, well, hold it, what have you been doing for these five hours? And, you know, let's have a conversation around that. So I think that's a really great thing to force everyone to improve the their supports, their service levels, their service offering. Mm. I think right. it, I think it is important to, to recognise, however, the, the difference between what's included in a service agreement and the stated supports within a plan because the stated supports within a plan are inflexible whereas a service agreement can be altered and, and changed, you know, as the service delivery sort of progresses and, and moves forward. Okay. It's a lot easier to understand it if you've got it in front of you and that's, I suppose, where NDS has recognised that and we have developed a practical guide on understanding NDIS plan funding. That's right, Pascal. And you can find the practical guide to plan funding and many other practical guides to the NDIS in our show notes at nds.org.au forward slash SDP. Fantastic. Is there anything else you wanted to share with us at this stage? I think at this stage, I think it's fair to say that if participants and, and providers are struggling to interpret and understand participant plans as they stand currently, do not feel as though it's your fault. Uh, the plans truly are quite complicated and difficult to interpret. Uh, they're often written, or don't include enough information or include a lot of information that makes it difficult to understand where funding decisions have been made. Certainly refer to the resources available to you because there are a number, the agency meaning the NDIA, have also developed a number as well to assist people to understand what funding means and how they can use that funding. So I'd, I'd certainly encourage people listening to to avail, avail themselves of all of the resources available. And, of course, registered Victorian disability service providers are always able to contact National Disability Services in Victoria to get further information on what, and let's be honest, is an often complex issue, being that of planning. So with that, I'd like to thank my guests, our very own NDIS Transition Advisor, Pascal Dreyer, and Daniel Layton, General Manager of Local Area Coordination at the Brotherhood of St Lawrence here in Victoria. And I'd like to thank you, our listener, for tuning into this episode. This is the first podcast of its kind, taking on NDIS operational issues for service providers. If you're a service provider and found this episode helpful, please leave us a review. We look forward to producing six more of these episodes focused on NDIS-related topics, so please do hit the subscribe button and new episodes will be delivered to your device automatically when they're available. I'm David Moody, State Manager for NDS in Victoria, and I look forward to connecting with you next month on the Sector Development Podcast, where we'll be looking at capacity building under the NDIS. Until then, take good care. NDS has produced a range of resources to assist Victorian service providers navigating NDIS operations for their business. Head to nds.org.au forward slash SDP to visit our NDIS sector development project website where you can access valuable information and resources in our NDIS resource library, find podcast show notes, access our free online 24-7 NDIS help desk, subscribe to our monthly e-newsletter and find information and registration links for our NDIS readiness and implementation workshops, which we host right around Victoria in regions currently undergoing NDIS transformation. That's nds.org.au forward slash SDP. 
Sector Development Podcast is a production by National Disability Services, copyright 2018. The podcast is produced with funding from the Victorian State Government's NDIS Transition Support Package. 